Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, The Landed Gentry in West Cork. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. The Munster Plantation started towards the end of the 16th century and stretched into the 17th century. The English Crown were hoping to create defensible English settlements in Ireland. They came because they were adventurers, basically, uh, Elizabethan adventurers who uh, were, were looking to, uh, they were usually younger sons uh, of a, people who uh, had estates in, in the west of England. The planters were given vast amount of land to form large estates. There were many thousands of acres in the estate, not all that many generations ago. In the early 20th century, many of the Anglo-Irish landowners left the country due to intimidation and arson attacks on their family homes. They threw out a lot of the furniture before they burnt it. And the, some little bits of furniture, the furniture, most of the furniture here came out of it. But uh, 90% of it was stolen. About three o'clock in the morning, they were wrapped up and the door broken in. And they were told they had from that until five o'clock to get out what they could. The burning continued and many murders were carried out by the anti-treaty IRA during the War of Independence. They had to leave. Some of them were shot, you know. I mean, they had no choice but to get out. Their houses were burned down in many cases. Some of these great houses survived the spate of burnings during that time. That was one reason that this house, unlike some others, survived. So let's get started. Stoleherd's ancestors were the Stoles of Coolmain Castle and Kilbritton Castle, and here he details a description of the family connection between the two castles in West Cork. I interviewed Stoleherd in 2011 in Mayfield in East Sussex, and he has since passed away. Well, they came because they were adventurers, basically, uh, Elizabethan adventurers who uh, were, were looking to, uh, they were usually younger sons uh, of us, people who were, uh, had estates in, in the west of England, uh, and to, they w- wanted to colonise Cork in what they call the sort of plantation of Munster. 
the two members of the family of the Stoll family that came over at that time, uh, one was Anthony Stoll, uh, who was born in Chudley in Devon in 1574, and he rented uh, the manor house of Raxall in Dorset uh, from a relation of his, Sir John Stoll of Cottleston, who was a very wealthy man, and lived in Cottleston Manor in Somerset. He had a number of large estates which were uh, obtained through marriages. Um, so he went over to Ballymoney, County Cork, where he died subsequently in 1613, or he went over in 1613, and uh, he died in 1632. Now his brother also went over, uh, his name was Thomas. He was Thomas Stowe, and he was born in Chudley as well. Not quite sure when he went over, he may have gone over a little bit later. Anyhow, to, uh, the, so the, the, the first one, Anthony Stowe, founded the Coolmain Castle side, uh, and uh, the Kilbritton side, where, where, where the ancestor was Thomas, his brother. Uh, so subsequently, in the, uh, uh, well, in the 18th century, uh, uh, Elizabeth Stowe of Kilbritton uh, married Eustace Stowe of Coolmain. So these were relations who intermarried. And in fact, the, then the Coolmain branch, who, of which I am, uh, they, uh, uh, they are descended from both the Kilbritton and the Coolmain side. So that's, that's how, uh, how, how they came over and that's what they, where they were. They owned vast amount of land in the surrounding area. My family did have about 11,000 acres, 11, uh, so 10,800 acres, I think. And then, of course, that's not talking in terms of the estate at Coolmain, the Stowell estate, and, of course, the Kilbritton estate, which I think was a couple of thousand acres. So um, they, 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 that, that, was, that was the Stowell side of the family. So they had uh, substantial land as well. But, it, of course, many of them were in the army serving overseas in India and so forth. And, of course, when the situation came with regards to absentee landlords and, and they've been able to sort of slap compulsory purchase orders on, on them to sort of uh, uh, sequestrate their land, the situation then changed completely and... We were left with 50 acres around Coolmain, which of course was not sufficient to, uh, uh, to support the, the, the estate. And here you've got uh, two photographs of Kilbritton Castle. One is the one before the before the, the fire. fire. Yeah. yeah. So um, just describe this. To, I mean, it was an absolutely amazing building. It was a huge, it? a huge place. I mean, absolutely enormous. Uh, someone said, to me, I think my father said to me once, it had uh, over 300 windows. Uh, and I, I can't really believe that necessarily, but it, it was an enormous place. And of course, after the fire. One whole side of it has gone, and even though it's been rebuilt, um, it's, 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 a, it's a shadow of its former self. <laughs> now, when did you first go and visit uh, the Kilbritton Castle? I, I think it was about 1959. Um, I, w I went over to Ireland and went down there, and it was curiously, I, I, we, I was hitchhiking down with a, an English friend of mine, and we were very young at the time, and... Um, uh, we we got a lift from a, a builder who was doing some work on Coolmain, funnily enough, uh, for the the present for the proprietor then, who was a chap called Barber, um, and uh, I think he was Sir Paddy Barber, or Sir Patrick Barber. Anyhow, he was a linen uh, sort of millionaire, I think, from the north of Ireland, who came down and, made, and uh, uh, bought Coolmain. In any event, um, uh, we were we were looking round the the ruin, as it were, then, and on the way back, the builder gave us a lift home as well, back to Cork. 
um, and he was saying that he was one of the one of the uh, the uh, uh, people who uh, who the, the the rebels who were bur- who burnt it down because they had British soldiers billeting there, um, and he was most apologetic. He was actually a very nice fellow, uh, and uh, so I said, oh, I'll forgive him for that. <laughs> It was the stole one, not uh, not not Coolmain. At least they spared Coolmain. Uh, but uh, it, it was because they had uh, British soldiers billeting there that uh, that that they they did it. The Howe family settled in Glanavaran in West Cork in the early 17th century, and they married into the McCarthy clan, who owned the land there before the Stoles took possession of the land and the castle at Kilbritton. This recording took place with Violet Howe in 2011 and she has since passed away. They owned the property. It was in for their full possession in 1677. And the property as such was acquired through a marriage with a member of the McCarthy clan of Kilbritton Castle. And the sibling... Uh, who was then, uh, who owned this particular area, lived in Glanavaran. This, there's a site, this house as we have it now, was um, built on the site of the old original building where the McCarthys, one of them lived, there was quite an extensive area of land about on about 700 acres and through that marriage the Howe family acquired the land but the Howe family he was John Howe he was a lieutenant of the fort at Castle Park in Kinsale and they had roots in Kinsale and they continued to live there and eventually they um, acquired quite a lot of property in the town. They were very involved in the community. He was uh, a burgess of the town, and eventually one of them became the sovereign of the town of Kinsale. But this, the land then here was occupied by siblings of the family from time to time. There was quite a lot of it. It was leased or rented, but it was in the possession of the Howe family. Now, in at the beginning of the 1700s, they were preparing to move back here, and they built the Georgian front, as you see, to the house but this part that I'm in was actually part of a wing of the old building. That's why we've got these enormously thick walls and, I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of problems in a way, but um, we love the place. The amount of land now, of course, is considerably less than mm-hmm. was there in that time. It was at one stage... Um, divided between the Howe family. Now that section have all gone from this area. Uh, When hard times came, especially, you know, um, in the early years of the 1900s, um, they could no longer 
due to political and due to you know the times that were in it um, they couldn't afford to keep up their property and that was sold but Glanaveran and around this house was considered this was where the main branch you see continued and we still have it for how long we don't quite know but it survived the space burnings that happened in this around about this place for what reason did the house survive here because of the connection with the ancient McCarthy family I see now I haven't got that in writing but um, we were told that by a very reliable source actually somebody who was concerned with the uh, Republican movement they made out lists of houses to be just you know burnt down and it was stated again this is hearsay at the, a particular meeting that this was not to be burned down because of the connection with the very old McCarthy clan. Violet Howe explains what the causes were for the demise of the Anglo-Irish in West Cork. There were so many, so few young men left after that First World War. Was that the beginning of the end, that war? I wouldn't say it was the beginning, but I'd say that it contributed a lot. Because, I mean, the change of government, you know what I mean, and the whole change of everything to them would have been um, um, devastating, really. And, of course, a lot of them had been um, driven out before, you know, in the period between the World War and the taking over of the Free State taking over, you know what I mean. Um, they had to leave. Some of them were shot, you know. The families had to leave. Uh, the family, there was a family now near um, the Batemans and Barry's Hall, and I mean, um, the head of the family was shot. I mean, they had no choice but to get out. Their houses were burned down in many cases. Did they feel threatened on both sides? I mean, they they were, I suppose, threatened by the by the local people uh, who would see them as as um, planters, if you like. In a sense, when I was going to school, we had to, um, we walked to school, our first primary school in league, and we had to go round, sort of round the back way, because we would be um, fine that the younger generation in the village was sort of proddy waddy wagtail, sort of, you know, and chanting like this. And it wasn't that we were terrified and we just thought that, well, I mean, they were Roman Catholics and that was what they do, you know. But uh, there wasn't any overt threat, I mean, that I can remember. But we were a nation divided um, by religion and possibly by the idea that um, if you were Protestant, you were English which was very wrong because, I mean, we always thought of ourselves as Irish. But then my father um, never really recognised the, the new government. He was 
in his mind, I think, waiting for the real government to return. Being? British rule. So his loyalty would have been to the, yes. to the crown? Yes. But then you see... Um, the, the, to many, I think, Protestant people... Uh, the crown, it wasn't so much loyalty to the crown in a sense, but uh, the, the uh, it was a protection. I mean, and even to the present day, the old RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, uh, which were manned by both Roman Catholics and Protestants, but I think possibly there might have been a majority of Protestants, you know what I mean. And um, they, by even by to the present day, by Roman Catholics, were regarded with uh, respect. Ted Newnham grew up at Coolmore Estate near Cargilline in Cork. The house was a very fine example of Georgian architecture, which has now fallen into a state of dereliction. Ted Newnham was recorded in 2011 at his own home in Glenmire. And he has since sadly passed away. Well, you, you, the question you've asked me mm. is when did they first come to Ireland? And to, to see that, it, it would look like that that was Edmund Newnham. And uh, it, it, it says here he was the first to settle in Ireland on his marriage, moved to Cork and purchased the estate of Coolmore 1680. Nearly 400 years uh, your family have been here in Cork. Have you any idea how, how large the estate was when they first came? I have seen those um, records, but I would have thought that there was many thousands of acres in the estate not all that many generations ago. Mm. Uh, and, and through a great deal of County Cork. What would be your earliest memories living there now? My memories would be that we we were a farm out away from the village life of Carrigline, probably very much self-contained. Um, we had a staff of possibly 12 men on the farm at that stage. The farm was 500 acres then, and we would have always had a staff of three people in the house. Um, and uh, my memories were very much of how difficult it was to keep those people happy. I suppose we lived a bit out in the wilds as far as they were concerned, and um, it... it, it, it there seemed to be an enormous turnout of staff. My mother seemed to be constantly going up to Cork and um, having to go to the domestic servant agencies to to get um, to, to keep the staff going. We, I think we probably ran a pretty comfortable house and um, I suppose there was a lot done for us and um, we would have had a man coming in in the morning who would have taken the shoes out and who would have probably attended to coal. And the, the place was very well organised, really. 
and Ted recalls here local people who worked on the estate. We had um, several families, the Feelys in particular, who had been there for generations and um, old <laughs> old John Feely, I'll, I'll never remember, I'll never forget him because um, when I was I don't know, there was kind of respect in those days for country families which <laughs> doesn't exist now and uh, we used to, especially at Christmas time, we'd go round to all the various families and we'd talk to them and that kind of thing. But old John Feely, to me, he would have been a very old man when I was maybe a nipper of four or five years old. And I, I remember quite well going down there and he referred to me as your honour. And I, th I thought for an old man like that, I've never forgotten that, you know, to, to call a, a little whippersnapper your honour was kind of, you know, interesting. But was your father referred to as, as, as the... He was always the captain. And his father before him was always the major. During the 1916-22 Troubles, uh, was there any threat of the house possibly being... Burnt. Yes. Yes, there was. Uh, and my father told various stories about half-drunk people coming at night. I know uh, one night some probably drunkard came to the door and demanded um, various things from my father. And uh, he told them to get lost. Uh, and of course at that stage they were burning houses like Coolmore uh, but um, they took off anyway and uh, he, he, he didn't get any more trouble but I mean there, there could have been a certain amount of bad feeling. Rosalie Thompson Rye lives in Rye Court Estate in West Cork, which suffered greatly from the spate of burnings during the Troubles in the 1920s. Here she talks about her family and how long they lived in the estate. Talk to me about Rye Court. How long are the family here? All this land around here belonged to a man called Captain Bailey. And he lived in the castle, Castle Moor, which is about half a mile from here. And he had two sons, which are those oil paintings over there, and they were drowned as children in the River Bride. Oh. And his, his daughter inherited Rye Court and married a Rye. Oh, what, and that would be back in... Uh, that, the, the, the house in Rye Court was built in about 1700. Because there's a sundial just uh, just there in the garden, and the date on that is 1702. Rye Court Estate was entailed to her father, John Thompson Rye, and a few years after World War I, John arrived on the estate to take it over. It was very hard because there was there was no house, mm. there was no stock on the place, and they built a little bungalow further on down the avenue. They they um, 
he he was very keen on horses and he trained racehorses quite successfully. Right. Now, so in fact, it was during the the troubles. The house was burnt. The house down. was burnt in nineteen twenty one. And you were and. At the time, there wasn't anybody living there, but no, because who, who had been living in the house? His um, grandfather, and then, you see, they, his grandfather and uncle, the eldest, there were three Rye brothers. Uh, the eldest brother wasn't, wasn't married, and he inherited by entailed from his father. And when he died, my Father's father had predeceased him. He died of the black flu in 1919. He's buried in Marseilles. He never got back from the first war. And it ha- it came to my father by entail. And here Rosaline talks about the burning down of the house in 1921. And and the house uh, was it fully furnished at the time? Yes. Was but the only thing is that the portraits and the silver were out of it. But the furniture... No, no, some of the... Fu- no, the... the sorry, they, um, they threw out a lot of the furniture before they burnt it. And the, some little bits of furniture... Furnit- most of the furniture here came out of it. But uh, 90% of it was stolen because there was no one there to... And the same thing happened in Castle Barnard, you see. They took the furniture out before they burnt it too. Um... How and it was put into storage in in Cork, in Natrosses in Cork. Early in the morning of the 21st of June 1921, Lord and Lady Bandon and their servants were ordered by the IRA to leave Castle Bernard. The castle was then torched and they stood and watched the castle burning and afterwards the IRA kidnapped Lord Bandon returning him again to the gates of Castle Bernard three weeks later. The Fort Earl died in 1924, and he was succeeded by his cousin, Earl Marshal Percy Bernard, the fifth Earl of Bandon. I spoke to his daughter, Lady Frances, and I asked her about her first visit to Bandon in the 1950s. I was born and brought up in England. What part? Um, mostly Berkshire like Barnard, <laughs> um, not far from Reading. Um, my, that was partly because my um, parents split up before, just before I was born, and so I was brought up by my mum, as was my sister. Um, so I first came over here when I was 13, I think, for a holiday, to stay with my father. And w- when you arrived here... Um Sometime it, it it would have been in the fifties when you came over, so would it? Yes, probably mm. fifty thirteen. I probably I would have been fifty six. I would have been one right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you stay? We stayed in the there's some cottages just over there. The ones you you um, drove up to first, except they didn't look quite like that then. Um, it was kind of um, I think my grandmother had turned it into rather an uncomfortable house, but it had been made from two cottages in a shed or three cottages, I'm not sure, so that Daddy would have somewhere, or I presume she would have somewhere to go um, when they were over here because there was nowhere else else to live because the castle had been burnt down. Um, so we stayed there 
which was the only thing I remember about it really was that it was extremely difficult to get from to the end bedroom because we had to go walk through two more bedrooms to get there. <laughs> so it wasn't the most comfortable of houses, but it, it did very nicely. But having uh, a lot of the um, the furnishings from the castle survived, and not, and not a lot, a small amount. Yeah. Well, there may be an awful lot more, but we, it, that we don't know about. <laughs> because we think it's an awful lot. As, as it was being burnt down, everything, a lot of stuff was chucked out, and some of it um, managed to be kept, but we don't know where the rest went, so we have no idea. So. But what was saved by the family were a lot of the, the, the portraits of, yes, of were, your ancestors. Were, um, yes, we have got only, not a lot, there's only one, two, no. three, two, three in there, are there? No. There, weren't, there weren't a lot. Um, really? very, uh, there were... Uh, maybe half a dozen pictures altogether, I should think. There were, um, there's a, quite a nice sort of um, china cabinet. Um, there's some china, there's, well, we've got one little bit of it there. I'm not quite sure where it is, it may be out there somewhere, I can't see it. Um, but oh, it's, it's over there, there's sort of glass, I think it's sort of Venetian glass or something. Quite a lot of that was left, there was some um, plates and things there, there was not uh, there's two chairs just out there too two chairs out there um, yes. not, not a lot not a lot not what a lot. about family uh, personal belongings you know uh, letters and f- photographs as far as I know very few there are a few photographs um, we've got a few and every so often more photographs do turn up every so often I know my, my son has a thing on the internet however you do it that if anything of band and interest yeah. comes up that he it yeah. pops up on his computer um, so things do pop up every so often um, there certainly was nothing in the way of um, clothes or jewellery or anything like that at all absolutely not nothing not that we're aware of I think the old Bandon went to he left Ireland almost immediately afterwards when he was released from imprisonment after the castle burned down he left here went to England and never came back and died, what, three years later. Core Castle and the surrounding lands in Enishannon was built in 1820. The castle was built on the site of a much earlier building, built sometime in the 1600s, and had passed down through the same family for many generations. Chambery Good spoke to me in 2012. Since I spoke to him, he has passed away. And he first talks here about his family's background. Now, you have a, a portrait on the wall here of uh, the Cocker, the Cocker. Uh, lady. Tell me a little bit about that family then. There was a Chambry Cocker. Now, Cocker married Stevenson. That Cocker. family lived in the castle, Cork Castle, and they had... He ran uh, um, the Nishannon Harriers. During the space of burnings here... Yes. Um, now, your son Richard was telling me how uh, you only got something like... Your father and mother got about two hours to get out of the house. They, 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 they got at ha- about three o'clock in the morning. They were wrapped up and the door broken in. And they were told they'd have from that until five o'clock to get out what they could. And at five o'clock the house was being put alight. And they they worked hard and I think my mother knew some of the people that were there to burn the place like because there were a lot of locals and 
they helped to get some of the stuff out apparently and they got out five van loads well now I presume they were horse van loads not like today of, of stuff out of the castle but there was a pile of stuff burnt and uh, my mother was still upstairs throwing out bedding and stuff out the windows when and they had the fire lit on the stairs so they had to throw a mattress on top of the fire on the stairs to get her down that was extraordinary Core Castle laid in ruins for many years and in the 1990s Shumbury's son, Richard, restored the castle back to its former glory and a family are now back living in the castle. Here he points out some of the beautiful trees that were planted by his ancestors. You might notice we have the most beautiful copper beech tree just outside the hall door there. That's right. It's very nice. That's, that's big cedar down there. It's a cedar of Lebanon and it is over 200 years old that tree is. Is it really? It is. Oh, my it is the second largest tree in Ireland. The the one directly outside the window, my goodness, it does soar into the second the sky. largest tree in Ireland, yeah. and uh, it's over 200 years old. And I've heard my mother say that she said the old people told her that it was grown from a seed in a flower pot and planted there. There's a lot of nice trees. There's down the lower and down further down the avenue. There's a um, uh, Japanese larch, which you won't see anywhere else. But the, if you see them when you're going down the, the drive in a minute, you'll see them. Yeah, and d- 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 and that that tree you're looking at here, that's leaning over there. That is an evergreen oak. You won't see many of those around. And that's another beautiful tree, isn't yes, it? Yes, never, never green oak. Timberleek House and Lands belong to the Travers family. They have been living in the area since the beginning of the Munster Plantation. I first spoke to Robert Travers and later to his father, now deceased, Niall Travers. They settled in Copenhagen Bay um, in the 1590s. Um, I think coming over with Lord Lord Grey's army, and uh, there was a, there still is a little fortified um, farmhouse called uh, uh, Ballantober, um, next to where the levels are. There, it's, it's a sort of a fortified bourne, and that was the settlement. And uh, then they purchased uh, this property in 1811. From who? Uh, f- from. Uh, Lord Riversdale, who in turn had purchased it from the Earl of Barrymore when his estates went bankrupt, ban- went bankrupt. I think the the family that were over near Court Sherry uh, did very well during the Napoleonic Wars when agriculture was booming, uh, all the exports from Ireland, and um, uh, at the same time the the Barrymore family had gone into decline. They'd gone broke, and Timonique came up for sale. Um, and uh, they they bought it from Tolson, uh, from uh, Lord Riversdale, who was a banker, um, and must have got it from from the Barrymores. Uh, and uh, that was sorry in eighteen twenty, in eighteen twenty, not eighteen eleven. So, how, how large was the estate then? Uh, I'm not sure how large it, it it was, but it was the castle town and lands of Timaleague. 
that, that were purchased mm. and uh, that, that, that was sort of the high point and ever since then it's been a decline <laughs> <laughs> Timber League House was burnt down during the Troubles It was, it was rebuilt again Yes It was Lake George a big square house Who had been living in it at that stage? Uh, well, my great uncle had inherited it when he was living in it It was the army took it over and they, uh, the Essex Regiment took it over because they were going to go down to the Coast Guard station in Port McSherry. But that wasn't ready. Same so when the house said it was ready. And of course, when they moved out, of course, to the IRE, flew about the place. Yeah, was the furniture uh, burnt? The furniture was burnt. Everything was burnt. But my father said there was a certain house that he couldn't, he couldn't go into because he might recognise the furniture. So to continue, the, the, uh, the stone from the old house was used in the building of this house. That's right, yes, yes. Um, the tower house had quite, quite a sad history, though, because it was also badly damaged um, during, the, during the Troubles. It, it, was, it was used for a little while as a prison, I think, by the troops. And then when they left, uh, there was an attempt made to blow it up. So the north, uh, the north, um, north east corner was blown out. And then it, it had to be pulled down in the 1930s because they were afraid it was going to fall on top of the the railway line. And um, it, it, because it was pulled down and the walls were never capped, it was deteriorating quite Quite, 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 quite dramatically. Quite dramatically, and um, about ten years ago, we we just put a roof on what remains of it to to halt the deterioration. Bantry House was built by the Hutchinson family in the late 17th century. It changed ownership to the White family in the early 18th century, who had originally been living on Woody Island, at the head of Bantry Bay. I spoke to the late Edgerton Shellswell White, who first spoke about the house and the family who lived in it. It was, I think, built in about 1690, um, where you come in the front door. It was just a small Queen Anne house, a small square house. It had three floors, and we actually have one of the foundation stones on the right of the front door as you come in, which is actually dated 1690. And that was um, belonged to a family by the name of Hutchinson. My family, who were living on Whitty Island, just out in the bay, actually bought it from them in about 1730. So it was already a 40-year-old house when they bought it. Um, but it was still a small house. So you would have to say that the house, as you see it now, is in fact mostly Georgian and Victorian. Mm-hmm. because all the additions that the second Earl made um, to the house and the layout of the gardens that he did were all done in the 19th century between about 1820 and 1850. And, and the, the Whites, they, um, they settled originally, didn't they, on, on Whitty Island? On Whitty, yeah. He, the first Earl, um, actually his father settled. It was the first Earl's grandfather who came over from Whitty and came to, to live here and the the uh, I, I, I suppose the 
the site, where it is, uh, the location is absolutely mm. wonderful. The gardens, uh, the, mm. he was responsible for laying them out. Well, the second Earl was Richard, yes. It's always a bit confusing. The first Earl was Richard, so was his son, mm. Richard. Then the next two were both William. But the second Earl, yes, he was responsible for matching the house with the garden, as it were. Um, at one point, um, from most of the time the gardens just sloped right down to the sea in a way much nicer um, a field with cows in it and things but it was he who actually put in raised the terraces put in the Italian statuary and things like that that was all his work and the estate stretched for many miles around the bay at one point we owned almost everything between here and Castletown Bay which is at the bottom of the bay all we have left of that now is the, technically ours, is the foreshore, that is the part of the beach between high and low water. Um, we also had three or four thousand acres in Glengariff, which I'm sure you know across the bay, um, which was where the, um, the main timber industry was sited really, that was where all the woodland was. Um, my parents sold that in, in the 1950s. Bantry House was saved from being destroyed during the Civil War. Edgerton Shellswell White explains why. During the Civil War, um, say early 1920s, um, we had, there was a hospital in Bantry, but it wasn't big enough and they ran out of room and they came to my grandmother who was here then, the one I told you, Arethusa, mm and said that could they expand, could they use this house as a hospital for the duration of the war, the Civil War. And my grandmother said yes. And so my mother remembers this when she was a small girl. It was run by the nuns, the Convent of Mercy, I think it was. So the whole of the house was taken up as a hospital during the Civil War. And now you may know better than I do whether this often happened or not, but it turned out that there were wounded and dying soldiers actually from both sides, both the treaty side and the um, Republican side. And I think that was one reason that this house, unlike some others, survived during that time because it was a sort of... Um, it cut across the boundaries, you Treat know. Treat a yeah. uh, the Republicans yeah. as well as yeah. the Free yeah. Staters. That's right, yeah. But Bantry House was still not out of danger. In the 1940s, Edgerton remembers a threat by the IRA to blow up Bantry House. House ever under threat? I mean, was there any threats made? Well, I remember one um, that my father had but it was much later. It was in the. He came back from England in about forty-eight or forty-nine, I think. And I remember him getting a letter um, saying that the house was going to be blown up or something. And he got us all out of bed and took us down to the end of the garden in case it happened. But that was the only one I remember. Mm-hmm. Now, you never know. I mean, you you think now that time has passed and that. Um, there is no threat now. Now you may be blinding yourself, but we feel now that we that we've that we've lived with 
Bantry so long and we've built up tourism together, I mean us as well as the town and everything, mm-hmm. you feel really, you don't feel threatened now but I think in those days one did a bit We've come to the end of this week's podcast, The Landed Gentry in West Cork Some of the people you've heard in this podcast are featured in my wife Jane's book, Voices from the Great Houses Cork and Kerry published by Mercier Press in 2013. The printed edition is now sold out, but a digital edition is available on Amazon. Or you can go to our website, irishlifeandlore.com, and download any of the full-length interviews. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.